Hello, welcome to another episode of I Love Rock and Roll. I'm Ken Krantz. And I am also Ken Krantz. Well, that's that's just a weird way to start. What if somebody... Meta Ken. Yeah. First off, nobody's looking for two of me. That's a lot. <laughs> Chip, why are you so fucking stone-faced? <laughs> Like what, I, I just wanted to see how long that could build that tension. <laughs> and then I think we were all just thinking of what the world would be like with two Ken Krances. Yeah. Yeah. That's not what we need. Um, they would have to battle. I want to uh, listen. There, just, there, ju- just another feature to crowd the pack. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't be battling. It would just, there'd just be another of me on the couch. Yeah. Arguing over what to watch. Um, uh, let me inter, let me in- introduce today's guest. Um, today we have, um, not a comedian, no director, no big time rock stars this week, but we have a true crime author, uh, whose book, Catch the Sparrow, a search for a sister and the truth of her murder comes out in February. Fe- February. Um, also a New York City public school teacher, one of uh, my good friends going all the way back to high school, and um, honestly, one of my favorite people to get drunk with at comedy shows <laughs> in New York. Give it up for my old friend, Rachel Rear. Hi. <laughs> How's good that for an introduction? Rachel, what, what do you teach in New York? Um, I teach eighth grade English. So there is an element of comedy to it. Also an element of true crime as well. Eighth yeah. grade. Yeah, that's <laughs> I was a uh, fourth grade teacher for many years. And oh, I uh, can never do that. There's so little. I, I can never do eighth grade. So, yeah, I, I give you I give you credit. That's uh, yeah. I well mean, I, I bet you could because like half of it is just being sarcastic all the time. So, uh, that's good. That, that's good to know. Yeah. But Rachel, Ken, uh, you, what, what grade oh, do you teach, Ken? Me, I teach, um, I teach ninth through twelfth. Okay. I teach algebra. A lot of people don't know that. Mm-hmm. That's my day job. I'm stuck teaching something I was never able to pass. <laughs> <laughs> it's like some kind of existential play. I never made it past. I was such a weird student. Like I was in honors English with Rachel, but then yep. I was also in dummy math. Oh, I I was the same way, Ken. I was in honors algebra in eighth grade. Like they did it. Most people took algebra in our school at ninth grade. I was in the honors class, but like I was more of the English kid and they put me in the honors math class and just totally bombed it in eighth grade. And she's like, look, you can keep going to like honors geometry next year and you're still going to struggle or you could just retake algebra and nobody's the wiser. It's just you know, you're taking it with regular things. And I took it in ninth grade and I aced it because I had already taken it, even though I was terrible at it. Like I already took it. So I already kind of like had the basis. And I was like, oh, I'm good at math. And I just I thought I was like, wow, I'm a good math student. But it was literally just because I took it the year before and I already kind of knew it. And then just back down the tubes in 10th grade yeah. again. And it just yeah. terrible at math again. We I took calculus my senior year and I actually don't know what that is. Like I don't <laughs> See, and yeah. I, I failed it. I failed it. I took it past fail and I still failed it. And I don't understand it as a concept. Like, what is it? I don't even know. Right. Yeah. yeah I, if you gun to my head, I would not be able to put <laughs> tell you what calculus, has, what it is at all. Yeah. I never made it past algebra. 
I took, see, Chip, I didn't even have the like, oh, I took it last year, so I'm kind of familiar. It was like every yep. year I took it, it was like learning a brand new language again that I failed. I failed algebra, so then they were like, you have to go to summer school for algebra. And then I failed summer school algebra. So they were like, you got to take algebra again in the fall. Yeah. And then I failed that. And then I think they just put me in a class called math. Like, I don't even think <laughs> yeah. it was just a white box with black lettering. Yeah. It's, did, like, you, did either of you ever wait tables? That's I, actually one job I'd never had. Yeah. I, oh, I, I did um, it for a couple months. Everyone else. Did you yeah. ever have a like a server nightmare? Or have you ever had a nightmare about your job at all? Like, oh, yeah, I out? have. Yeah. Like, so there's such a thing like. In, in waitressing nightmares, it's like people are ordering things that aren't on the menu. There's like two restaurants that are 10 miles away and you have to run back and forth, you know, but teaching nightmares, things like that happen too. like you have no control over the classroom, which is actually I'm always surprised when I do. I'm like, why are they doing what I'm telling them? To do? <laughs> I, I have the dream that I haven't had it. It's been six years since I quit, but I had the dream for so many years where like I would. And of course, like my kids are younger, they're like nine year olds. So you, you really have to be on them more. And obviously just, you know, they're literally, they're little, you have to be careful. So like uh, my dream, I would drop them off at lunch. They had a half hour for lunch. And then I would leave to like go run an errand, which we weren't allowed to do in our school. We weren't allowed to leave the premise, oh. but like I would do that. And then like my car would break down and I would have to like walk back, but I would be like two hours late to pick up my kids and they'd be running all over. And it was, yeah, it was, a, it was yeah. a stress dream. So I had a dream, I had this dream, I've had two recent, uh, like in recent, I stopped having these nightmares years ago, but in recent years I've had two teaching nightmares and both of them I had to teach math. So in one, I was teaching math and there was a number that was so long that I didn't know what, what it was called. Like how, like I was like, it's bigger than a billion or trillion. I don't know what it is. What is it? I don't even know. And the kids were like, you don't even know. And then the kids got mad at me and they were like, you're an idiot. And then they, they left. They just stormed <laughs> out of the classroom. And I'm like, that's why I don't teach math. That sounds like my comedy nightmares, except that's that's actually that, what that happens actually during happens. my shows. They're like, they're like, what you you don't even know what a joke is, you idiot. And then and they, they just storm out. And then they storm out. But then they wait for you in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, to continue yelling at me. I, so, I will say, I think I was better at teaching math, though, and of course, it's on a fourth grade level, but. I think I would like fractions. I was really good at teaching because I was terrible at fractions growing up. So I had to really focus on, it. I really had to learn it where like with like, like English and writing always just kind of came easy to me. So like I had a tough time teaching that because it was like, well, just do it. Like I would just be like, just do it. And yeah. like, I wouldn't think about it, but like with math, I was like, Oh, I'm an idiot. I know how to break this down and, uh, and speak to the, uh, to the layman about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but Rachel, are you so you just sold your first book? Yeah. And are, are you going to be teaching much longer? Uh, probably. Yeah. I'm I, I'm I have on what I call my golden handcuffs because I'm actually starting my 22nd year of teaching. And if I can make it to 25, then uh, that's an unreduced pension. Yeah. So the pension is on the horizon. But um, so it seems silly not to make it to 25 years now. But also, yeah, I mean, I like it. Sometimes. <laughs> that was so convincing. Sometimes. <laughs> last year was the hardest year of my whole teaching career, for sure. Oh, yeah. With COVID. I mean, I can't. I can't, fa A, I can't fathom 
being back in the classroom just because it's been so many years, but just this past year, like never have I been more ex- like uh, accepting of my choice. Like I am, I made the right decision and like, I give you so much credit. I, and my brother's still, a, still a teacher and I have so many friends who are teachers and it's just, I don't know how you guys did it. I, it's I hard. It was know. hard. It was, I mean, and last summer I was involved in so many like planning meetings and I really didn't think we should go back in person yet. And then we ended up closing the buildings again, like after, I don't know, a month. So I guess you're right. But we spent all this energy um, planning and fighting. And then, you know, no one, it it just, whatever was going to happen happened. So this year I'm kind of just like throwing my hands up, like whatever. Yep. Yeah. That's kind of what you have to do. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so, yeah, but my book comes out in February. I'm really excited uh, from B- Bloomsbury Publishing, and um, it's really been like it's the work of my life. Really, I conceptualized it in like 2009. Um, wrote a little bit, wrote myself into a corner. Didn't know what I was doing, and then um, 2015 just sort of was reinvigorated. And and also, I didn't know what genre I was writing. And then when I realized, oh, it has to be a true crime, then I understood what I was doing, you know, um, yeah. And I traveled up to Rochester to meet with the DA of Monroe County. And she gave me a CD that had 700 police files on it. And it's, that's, it just started from there. Yes. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about this. The, the, so the, our subject today, uh, so Chip and I back at the beginning of August had started what we thought we, we thought we were going to do a month of true crime stories, mm-hmm. which is, which is why we invited you. Um, but then you got Richard Marks. Yeah. But then we, we landed all of these. We got Richard Marks and Daisy Fuentes and Stephen Perkins, who, who ties in today's episode and uh, Bobby Bandiera. So we just had all these musicians suddenly were nice enough to give us their time. And, and we, we cool. yeah, we did these interviews. So now we're even though it's like the end of August, now we're getting back to our uh, true crime series. And um, we're, we're covering Dave Navarro today from Jane's Addiction, mm-hmm. who um, I think a lot of people don't know that his mom was murdered. I didn't know until you told me. Yeah, it's you know, it's very strange how I found out because I remember um, sitting home one night watching America's Most Wanted, which wasn't even something that I normally watched. And uh, that dude, John Walsh, suddenly introduced um, Dave Navarro's mom's case because um, I think it was a little different. I, I don't know too much about your stepsister other other than what you've told me. I, I don't know yeah. all the details, but with Dave Navarro, it wasn't like an unsolved murder. They knew they knew who it was. The dude was just on, he, he was on the lamb. Yeah, he yeah. was on the run for a long time. Yeah. So they were they were specifically looking for her uh, ex boyfriend, but. Um, Tell us, tell us about your book and uh, your stepsister's murder. Sure. Um, I one thing to say is that I never met my stepsister. Um, she she sort of became my stepsister posthumously. Um, my so you might remember though her dad, Mr. Kupchinski. He was like the director of the music program in our hometown of East Brunswick, New Jersey. Right. So it, anybody that took any kind of that played any kind of instrument sort of knew who he was, right? Um, so in 1991, when I was 14, uh, his daughter, Stephanie, vanished overnight um, from her apartment in Greece, New York, which is right 
next to Rochester. And, and did you um, know, did you, I'm sorry, did you know her at all just from being in the I town didn't. or were I just you aware knew him. of the story? I knew him. Yeah. I mean, I knew, I knew him and I knew he had kids, you know, and a family, but I knew him. He was my music teacher, you know. So like, you knew I, about this story though. You knew about his dog. Oh yeah. So yeah. right. As soon, well, as soon as it happened, it, word just spread, sure. you know. Um, yeah, I swear I don't. I don't know memory. I, I also I didn't play any instrument. If yeah, he had, you were sort of. If he'd been like a dummy math teacher, I probably would have. <laughs> <laughs> news would have but trickled down like to we me. We all knew, and yeah. and um, all of the music students knew. And I was, I guess, I had just started tenth grade, so I remember like like seeing him walk through the band room and just I don't know. I would. Maybe I was projecting, but he just looked like heavier and sadder to me. He had this really like uh, thick Ukrainian accent and he was like adorable and like, well, he was actually known for when he taught in East Brunswick High School, he was known for being pretty strict and he would like throw things at, at uh, orchestra members and yell and <laughs> some stuff whiplash like. stuff going on. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Like it's like Mr. Holland meets the guy from Whiplash. Like if you could mash them together. Right. My <laughs> other stepsister actually wrote a book called Strings Attached. That's about my my stepdad. Um, but and, and how old was the your stepsister when she, she tw- vanished? Twenty seven. OK. So she was a music teacher also. And she was teaching in Greece, New York. So she vanished overnight. Um, I knew about it and I just fixated on it. And I was 14 at the time. I just fix. I remember talking to like, I remember talking at home about it with my mom and just, I was just fascinated with the idea of like somebody just sort of evaporating. Like she, there was, she was nowhere. No one knew. And, um, and then she was missing for seven, almost seven years in that interim. Um, my parents got divorced and we ended up moving right next door to Mr. Kopchinski, which we thought was like, like hilarious at the time. We're moving next to our teacher. He had directed me in like summer orchestras and things like that. He knew who I was. Um, and we moved next door to him and my mom and he just met sort of like over the fence, pruning tomatoes and things like that and hit it off. And we were, my sisters and I were shocked when they announced that they were getting married. So sort she became my stepsister, you know, like, when they got married. So um, I remember like there was a photo of her at my mom and stepdad's wedding, like right next to the wedding cake, we had a photo of Stephanie. So she was very much present, you know, and then maybe about six months after the wedding, there were two little boys who were trying to catch fish in a stream in some rural town and they found her bones. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've spoken to both of those boys too. They're like 30 something now. Um, I mean, I spoke to, I probably interviewed a hundred people to write my book, but those boys, you know, it affected them forever. It really did. It also bonded them together in a strange way. Like they were best friends then, but they're like, this is something that like they, you know, they, they, they saw the bones. They were like, Oh, they thought it was like animal bones at first. And then they, and then they saw the skull and they were like, Oh, this is a human. And like, one of them told their stepdad and he was like, yeah, right. And they called the sheriff and the sheriff's like, yeah, right. And then it was, <laughs> sounds like a movie. Like nobody ever does. believes kids uh, when they what's stand by me. Right. Yeah. That's I was, I was just yeah. Gonna... The boys said they were like, yeah, everybody thought it was like a stand by me situation or something like that. But like they took him out there and sure enough, you know, there she was. And they, they test, they, I think they identified her with her dental records. Um, but it was her. 
And then, and then that was 98. And then it just sort of, the case went cold after a while, although the lead investigator on it worked so hard and so tirelessly, but he didn't even have a body for six, six years, right. seven years. There wasn't even a homicide until 98, you know, he retired in like 2000. It went, I don't know if it was technically cold, but there was no work done on it um, until 2010. Um when the police chief of Greece, New York, went to prison. There's a whole section in my book about the corruption of the police department in Greece, New York as well. He went to prison. A new chief came in and the new chief sort of reopened three old cases. Um, and one of them was Stephanie's. And he's just, he, he was like, we got to get the community's trust back. So he reopened these cases, reassigned them. And then... Um, Stan Chizik and Mike Ives, brilliant sort of mind hunter type, so smart detectives, um, solved it. And wow. Yeah. And so, it wasn't solved until like 2012. So who 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 was it? Well, that part. That, I don't you know. gotta you gotta give the book. You gotta get yeah. the book. Yeah. Will you tell Wait, me? It wasn't it, it wasn't Ken, so right? So many it was not Ken Krantz. Okay. Could you fucking imagine me dragging a body down to the river? There's yeah. no chance. I would have been You're like also he was 14. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like he's trying he's trying to do the word problem. Like this body weighs so many pounds. And I guess like, I don't know how to do math. I can't do any. I don't play an instrument. Oh what were you doing? I know what you're doing. At 14, I was uh smoking weed and listening yeah, to Jane's addiction. Music, exactly. <laughs> Smoking weed and listening to Jane's Addiction. Exactly. So, um, so I thought that this would, I thought that your book tied in uh, to the Dave Navarro story a little bit. Absolutely. And then you, you know, what's so funny is normally I take, like I've said this before, like doing this show, it's like writing a term paper every week and yeah. I take pretty meticulous notes and um we watched, uh, I had you guys both watch the same documentary called Morning, Morning Sun, yeah. Morning Sun which yeah. is on Amazon Prime about the murder of Dave Navarro's mom. And I watched it a few weeks ago and then I went back to watch it last night. But I was like, it's just so fucking depressing that it was like you like I could only watch it once. Like normally I'll watch these movies five or six times to get ready for an episode and I couldn't even and then this morning I was like I should really just maybe fast forward but then it was like it, it turned into like high school English where I was like I'm sure Rachel took really good notes like I, it was like a group I, assignment I <laughs> not really good but I do want to do a little marching band shout out because I think didn't 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 they say in the movie that Stephen Perkins and Dave Navarro met in marching band yes. yeah they were yes yeah. absolutely I was drum major Ken doesn't know that probably Oh, nice. <laughs> I didn't know that. Do you even know what that is? Yeah, that's the you're like in charge of the drummers, right? In charge of everybody. I was in charge of the whole thing. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I got to box yeah. around ninth graders. It was fun. You're right. I didn't know that. I can tell you a lot of things about me you probably didn't know back yeah. then. That's true. Hey, do you remember this? I told you this story already, but you maybe, well, of course you remember Mr. Kenny's English class because yes. he was both of our favorite teacher yeah. ever. Michael, is that his first name? Yes. Michael he, Kenny. He was an old school Irish drunk English teacher. 
Well, That's so weird. Time. I had a fourth grade teacher named Michael Kenny. I mean, I'm sure there's a million Michael Kennys, but yeah, he was one of my favorite teachers. Was he like was it. he hung over a lot? Did he Honestly, yell at the probably, popular kids? Yeah. Did he make the popular kids wash his car? Because that was my favorite thing. <laughs> he did not do that. He gave out lifesavers. That's all I remember. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Different time. <laughs> he would take your lifesavers. <laughs> um, but that's where we, I, I adore that man. I went back after I became a teacher and told him that I, I modeled a lot of my teaching off, off of him. But it was like the last day of school when we were playing hangman. I told you the story, Ken. Yeah. And you... You, you, your, uh, whatever the words you put up was, was cursed female. Oh, that's funny. The porn. And of I got it. And it was like the first time I felt like you actually acknowledged my existence. You were like, huh? I was like, it's cursed female. And oh, then yeah. you were, I was like, oh, she knows a cool song. You were that's like, huh, maybe she's right all right. Wow. Noted. And I was like, no, duh. Yeah. Yeah, but, so that was funny. I thought of that when I was listening to um, to your last podcast. To the interview with Stephen it. Perkins. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I wanted to talk to him. Stephen Perkins was such a like a joyful, happy, celebratory yeah. dude. I actually had questions about the murder of Connie Navarro, but it felt like I don't know. It, it, I mean, he, he probably he just, he, I'm sure he would have, but he he just seemed like he was just into being happy about shit. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to bring yeah. that down. I would be interested to see what his take on it. Could you imagine yourself, Ken, in high school, thinking that in twenty or so years, that like you would be in a position where you're like, you know what? I just really didn't want to bum out the dude from Jane's addiction. <laughs> like that's the power that you hold. He just seems so happy. <clears throat> I don't want to ruin his day talking about his best friend's dead mom. Oh, God. Um, Chip, do you want to? Um, do you want to give a little? And for me, this is, it's a really, it's like a sad yeah. story, it but is. there's also yeah. moments. Go ahead. I'll be right back. Yep. Oh. I guess we're going to edit this part out. No, this is, this is the part we're going to open with. Are we going to talk about Chip while he's gone? <laughs> I don't even have anything bad to say about Chip. It's annoying. We all have this double initials. Records. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> We do. We all have double initials. And I was going to tell you guys about this uh, serial killer in Rochester called the double initial killer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did he kill people with double initials? Yes. He he would kill like teenage girls who had double initials. And then what? Yeah. And then he would put their bodies. I, I just I can't remember when it was. So I'm going to just Google that real quick. But he would put their bodies. Um, he would take them from where they lived and then leave their bodies. Um in a town that had the same that started with the same letter as their names. So not only was he a serial killer, he was also a fucking door. I was just going to say that. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say that. Wow. <laughs> what a loser. He was a yeah. sociopath who loved alliteration. Yeah. You know? yeah. 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 No, so double initial or alphabet murders. Um, oh, between 1971 and 1973. So for example, like, he took Car uh, Carmen Cologne and killed her and left her body in Chile. And it was like, there, I forget how there were three, three murders. And it was all the same thing where it was like, uh, yeah, Carmen Cologne. And then I forget who the other two. I mean, their names are here. I should. That just sounds like a new Sesame Street character yeah. that would do that. Oh, just God. like if you like a like a like a horse that murders people that just you learn the <laughs> alphabet at the same time. Uh, it's like the Wanda, count, it's like the yeah, count but 
when Wanda Wachowicz was left in, I forget what town. And then Michelle Mayenza was the third. And and yeah, he left their bodies in towns that started with the same letter as there. So all these teenage girls in the early 70s weren't going out. They were terrified. If you had double initials, you were. And I've spoken to a couple of people with double double initials from up there. Like, there's a guy I talked to. His wife has double initials. Who was like a teenager at the time. You just didn't go out. You stayed in. You were like, I'm gonna, if I go out, I'm going to get murdered. So we would have all been kind of scared if did, we were teenagers. Did, did they weird. catch him, or did he just get tired it's, from uh, having no, to do all that work? It's on. I think it's unsolved. Yeah, he and there's probably like just theories. There's theories about who it could have been. Um, I think like maybe at one point they thought it was Kenneth Bianchi, who was like the um, help, help me. <laughs> he was the um, Hillside Strangler. Yeah. Okay. Right. What so, if it was just totally a coincidence that that happened? And the guy was guys like reading about it years later, whatever. He's like, oh, my God, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a quickie thing. Do you do you think there's a do you think it's unsolved because he moved on to a different like, you know how like I don't know you, why it could be like he died. He went to prison. He moved. So Bianchi, it says um, he's also suspected in the alphabet murders, three unsolved murders in his home city of Rochester, New York. So he was from Rochester. Yeah. That's why. Some people thought like he maybe went like it's to, like it's like right. how, it was like his, uh, you know, it was like his training ground. Right. And I think he actually killed another person with the same name, Carmen Colon. Like like he killed a woman named Carmen Colon. Uh, two two different ones with the same. Well, name? if he is the double initial killer, then, yeah, he killed two people with the same. exact Oh, uh, because that could be some Terminator type shit like that could just be a robot from the future. Help, Kill, killing help killing ladies with the same name. Yeah. You didn't see oh. you didn't see Terminator? No. Oh. Did you ever see Kindergarten Cop? No. <laughs> okay. That's also Somehow my uh, Schwarzenegger yeah. film history is lacking. Sorry. Yeah. Well, maybe he was just like um you know how comics bounce around from podcast to podcast? Like he was just trying shit out until he found one that he liked. Like maybe he's yeah. just maybe he's out in Seattle now and he's like the Sudoku killer. Yeah. Is that a real thing? I don't know. I mean, it sounds like it could be right. I think you're giving people ideas now. Be quiet. <laughs> and like think about the legwork you had to do. Like you, like I could find victims on Facebook nowadays where you just look them up. But like he really right. had to like I mean, I don't know if maybe just the phone book, but like he would have to know something about these people to really you know, know their name, know, know all that background. That's a, I'm consuming. Wow. It does seem like a lot of work. Get a hobby, play golf or something. I mean, I think being a serial killer is generally a lot of work. Yeah. It does sound exhausting. Yeah. So I think what we're all in agreement is the, that they're unsung heroes is what we're saying. <laughs> it's just the time and effort that goes in. It's just the well, there more, are, there are like, you know, those women who like, like fall in love with serial killers. And I mean, I'm sure men do too, but you don't want to be sexist about it. Do you oh, ever, it's, it's crazy. Like I, it's like the guys, like a guy's been married. Like there was some killer that was married like three times in prison. Like he just, Ted Bundy got married while he was in prison. Yeah. 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 Mark. I mean, women actually still, still like have crushes on Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Mark David Chapman is still married to the same lady from before him killing John Lennon. 
Like he's been married for 45 years or something like that. Oh, I didn't realize he was married. Romantic. Yeah. 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 And they're, they're, they're born again. They're like good Christian people. Oh. So, all right. Were they, were they beforehand? No, I think beforehand, um, he was super into, uh, murdering people. Okay. And then and reading, yeah. and reading Catcher in the Rye, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually we have Chip wasn't here for it, but we we did an episode on Mark David Chapman. If you haven't heard, you should go back and listen because yeah. we we uncovered yeah. a lot of wild shit. But let's get into yeah, talk about. let's get into Dave Navarro a little bit because this yeah. is uh, this story is wild. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. So I so I guess the it was a double murder that we're dealing with here. I know that's what's so interesting. Right. It's kind of crazy. And the if you watch it, it was a good documentary called Morning Sun, like M-O-U-R-N, Morning Sun. Uh, he said that out of respect for the other family, he didn't really get into the other woman. But uh, it was on March 3rd of 1983. And then we'll go back a little bit. But March 3rd, 1983, Dave Navarro's mother, Connie Navarro, and her really good friend, Susan Jory, who like he referred to as Aunt Susan. They were, they were so close, uh, were, were murdered uh, in their uh, West in her West Hollywood home. So uh, real quickly, little background. Connie Navarro was born in uh, in and I had a I had her maiden name written down and I lost it. But um, she was she was born in 1941 in Detroit. Uh, everybody seemed to love her. She was uh, uh, she beca- she moved to L.A., became a model. She was on The Price is Right, the early days of The Price is Right of like Barker's Beauties kind of situation. She was in a lot of TV commercials and just had this this look about her that uh, apparently got a lot of work as a as a model. She met Mike Navarro uh, and uh, they got married and they had a son in uh, 1967. Dave, of course, David, Dave Navarro in Santa Monica. So he, uh, he was born in 1967. In 1975, they were divorced, but they for all intense purposes they seem to have stayed on good terms like they would go out to dinner sometimes still right as a family and they mm-hmm. he was very involved after even during the murders to a certain extent you know he was very involved in their lives they, you know they seemed to have a really good relationship uh she just seemed like a really cool lady in there they when they got divorced they lived in west hollywood uh, everybody in the neighborhood seemed to love her that the neighborhood kids loved hanging out like they were like she was like she wasn't just a mom she was like yeah. just super cool um and then in, I believe it was the late 70s, she started dating John Dean Riccardi, who was like a, I, I don't even know what he did for a living. I forget if they said he was like a bodybuilder, like just this big guy. He just, they, he they, looked like, he looked like every bad guy from an episode of The Fall Guy. Like, that's what he looked like. He just looked like a <laughs> dick. Like somebody who would beat up that Jack Tripper with a regal footage, beagle. You remember that footage in the film um, where she's like, I don't know, chopping vegetables or something. She's like fixing something at the counter and she's like dancing around. And then I think he comes into the frame and it's like, I don't know, again, I'm like sort of reading it as a writer. And he just seems like, to me, he read as like this sort of downer, you know, oh. like he was like this. Yeah, you see uh, her body language. Like, she's like dancing and like glowing. And then in he comes like all like brooding, you know, just seemed like an asshole. And like, yeah. you could just tell like one point, like you couldn't hear what was what was being said, but she's having a good time. And like at one time, I think he grabs a soda or something like that and just kind of like storms out. Like you could just I definitely felt that, too. It was just like mm-hmm. he just seemed like a like a jerk. And uh, and and he was like he just 
at first they, he came off all right. The one cousin said he met him though. And like right away, he didn't like him, but you know, he seemed to be really good to Connie. They dated for a while. And then at one point, uh, which, and I think they said they live, they basically lived together. He had his own place, but like he would stay most of the times. And then things started getting weird. At one point they were, both of them, Connie and John were held at gunpoint at her apartment. And like, they were like robbed and held and they didn't get totally into it, but felt like he might've been in on it. Like he was a con man and this might've been some sort of inside job. And like, so people are really starting to sour on this dude. Right. And he, uh, then of course he starts getting, um, you know, he just seems very possessive of her. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's physical altercations. He's it seems like he's you know, he's hitting her. He, I mean, just I mean, just classic, just asshole behavior. And and, that classics like if if I can't have, you no one will sort of. Right. Just this arrogant sociopath yeah. kind of. Yeah. Vibe to him. Police, um, police are called a few times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I believe the police were called a couple of times like they knew about this guy. She had a. a, a um a restraining order against him. And but the, they said that when they broke up, like the whole neighborhood was on edge because he would just like stalker. He would like hang out at the end of the street. Mm-hmm. People didn't were like, weren't cool with him. Like he would just, he would break into the house, which we'll get into later. Oh, but like, yeah, a couple times he'd break into the house. Uh, he would like stalker at restaurants. Like she would be at like a business meeting with a man and he would like sit at the next table over and just stare them down and like sometimes get in her face or the guy's face. I mean, it was just, I mean, it was awful. There was one point apparently where he did kidnap her at gunpoint and apparently made her drink a bunch of liquor, at, you know, and, and I mean, just basically held her hostage for it for like a night. Uh, There's a really cute quote from him at one point that he apparently said to her, uh, there are no locks that can keep me out of your house. So, which is just like, yeah, it's hard. I, I, I literally just got like goosebumps from that. I can't. Yeah. I mean, it's a the, weird move the, though, to kidnap you, hold you at gunpoint and then make you have fun. Like no, that's. Well, I, well, didn't they say she didn't really drink though or something like that? Oh, yeah. I, eh. Maybe. Well, that joke. That's, makes I mean, I've, uh, I've heard of that happening before. They're like, I don't know. It's, it's a power thing. It's a, it's like. I can talk like I can make you do something again, whatever it is against your consent without your consent. And and it's just like the helplessness. You can just, I mean, especially in, and I mean, I don't know how much better things have gotten over the last 40 years, but just that she couldn't get rid of this guy. Like he was just a presence and nobody seemed to do anything about it or was, was able to do. It's really hard, you know? Um, And then I wrote one of my notes was like, I think it's Steve Navarro who says something could have been done like towards the end. And Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, of course something could have been done, but people, people didn't listen to women when they were like, this guy is going to kill me. And that still happens. Yeah. They still don't. They still don't. Right. Exactly. Still very, I mean, that's actually like, when when we get to it, there's like a section in my book where I talk about like murder rates and men and women and stuff like that. So I, I was hoping to read that paragraph, but absolutely something could have been done. Right. Yeah. No one listened to her. She so, was even switching like she she would make her nephew switch cars with her. So because she was worried that he was tailing her. So he, he she was she was she was definitely scared for for her life and it seemed like she was telling just about anybody who would listen 
there was a line early, early in the um, film where he says she wanted freedom. She wanted her own agency, but the world wouldn't let her. And I just felt like that was like this sort of running motif throughout the whole thing. The world wouldn't let her have her own agency, even when she was saying, this guy's going to kill me. Like, can I just live? And still society authority, no one stepped in. Yeah. And, and so this guy just keeps showing up, keeps and when I say showing up, br- breaking in literally one day, Dave, who I think was 15 at the time, I think this is fairly uh, not, not too far before the actual murders. He broke in one day. Dave happened to be home from school. He's probably like 15 years old. He was homesick from school. Uh, John breaks into the apartment without no. The, I think it's an apartment, right? They're yeah. at home. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah the so. apartment. And not thinking, I think, that nobody was home. So, you know, Dave surprises him. He, he like, I think, climbs up to the balcony and like breaks in the one door, like a sliding door. And Dave knew it was him and was like, oh, my God, he's going to kill me. But then there was such this weird psychological thing where Dave was like, who's there? Even though he knew it was John. And then he he decided, which I think is quick thinking. He's like, oh, John, thank God you're here. I think somebody is breaking in. And yeah. he knew full well that he was right. the one who broke in. And then he was like, John also knew that I knew that he broke in. So they did this charade for a while yeah. for a couple minutes of like, oh, well, yeah, thanks. And he's like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll protect you. And, you know, there was this dance of like, oh, well, thanks so much. And then basically he just turned on him, like I think pulled a gun on him and then took Dave into the bathroom and handcuffed him to the toilet and basically threatened him. And uh, and then I and left him there, I think, for a while. And then do you guys remember this exactly? I think I think the mom then came home. She came home and I can't remember exactly how it went. Do you remember, Ken? Um, the, no, I don't remember. So I, basically I remember like <laughs> after a, hell, a while, it's a hell he of comes, an informative <laughs> podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but basically he comes in and then uh, like, un like unlocks the, the handcuffs, lets him free and like, basically like apologizes, like, Oh, I'll never do this to you again. You know, total <laughs> yeah. psychopath behavior yeah. and sociopath behavior. And just like, Oh, I'll never do this again. You know, whatever. And then he, Dave was just like, I just wanted to see my mom. I just wanted this to be over. So I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I won't say anything. And then which and which he didn't. And you don't want to blame him. But at the same time, like, you know, had he said something, is this another red flag? That I mean, it's obviously just a red flag that is missed that the guy breaks into the house to do God knows what. And, you know, this happens. So what broke my heart also about that anecdote? And I think I was texting Ken while I was watching watching this but my students are that age you know i teach eighth grade so they're 14 and i'm so protective of them like they're babies you know in a way a 14 year old eighth grade's fascinating because that they think they're not they think they think they're really grown up but they're really just babies well they're both right you know uh in the same instant and so I don't know. I just like the little boy that Dave Navarro was, I was like crying and my heart was breaking because I, he had that to be able to think that quickly and Mm -hmm. to like, no child should have to do that. Yeah. To strategize in such a way. He, he, yeah, he, he says in the movie that he thought he was going to die right then and there, like handcuffed to his toilet. Yeah. Which I think is how Elvis went. Right. 
No. Yeah. yeah no. She, yeah. She was no. Also actually, eating a pizza or something. Yeah. While handcuffed to the toilet. You know, John John Riccardi was actually his trumpet player. Came in <laughs> one night. They played racquetball together, and then he chained him to his toilet. And, and that's actually how Suspicious Minds was written. It, it, it is. That's if, if you listen to the lyrics carefully. <laughs> We can't go on together. Can't touch the toilet. So, uh, not too soon, not not too long after this, uh, March third, nineteen eighty three. I believe it was a Thursday. Uh, Dave usually went to stay with his dad on Wednesday nights. It just so happened that this week his dad couldn't he had had a conflict. Couldn't see him on Wednesday night. So they, he stayed at his dad on Thursday night. It just so happened that he was out of the house when it, uh, John Riccardi breaks into the house. I believe it sounds like he broke into the house. I, it seems like this, the same MO from before. I think he might've broken into the house bef- when the house was empty. Then uh, that's when Connie and her good friend, Susan Jory came home. He could have been like rehearsing breaking in. Yeah, exactly. Like, right. Figuring out how. Yeah. And then I don't think anybody really knows the story, obviously, besides him. But from what they pieced together, there was an altercation. He ends up shooting Susan Jory in the face and then shoots Connie a number of times. And I think actually ends up killing her like by uh, I, th- I think by suffocating. Her. Yeah. Like that was, yeah. you know, like he shot her a couple times and then kind of finished the job with a with like a pillow and then tried to sh- you see the pictures of her body like she's like half in this linen closet so he's like trying to awesome. shove her inside of a, a linen closet like half hide her and then he yes. sort of gives up yeah like, eh, like eh. whatever yeah it's so disrespectful it's, it's so- yeah it's the worst so so i think it's the next day rolls around people haven't heard from her things are are getting weird Dave's dad, you know, where he was is still pretty close. He decides he's going to go check on her. And like they all know in the back of their heads that like this guy is bad news. We haven't heard from mom or whatever. So they he goes in and checks the house out. And if if I remember correctly, and then, you know, finds out what happens. Uh, The police are called and they put him in cuffs like he gets handcuffed because he's the ex-husband. So they're like, we think that it. After a little bit of talking, he they they let him out of the cuffs and and there's like it's definitely a tight knit neighborhood. Plus, there's like cousins around and all. And the one cousin was like, "No, it's definitely this guy, John Riccardi. Like everybody knows it's this dude." Mm-hmm. So they get a first of all, they get super upset because they were like, "Does John know where the dad lives? Because that's where that's Dave is." Right. So he's he's like, "Yeah, he does." He's she's like, "We need to get to Dave immediately to." Hopefully this guy doesn't go go to him next, you know, go to the house, try to kill Dave. So, you know, they the police rush over. They bring the dad and, you know, he finds out you know the terrible news. They get a, a, a warrant. They go to Santa Monica where uh, John's house, you know, John's home is. And he's gone like he just, you know, takes off uh, and uh, he disappears for eight years, which I think is is crazy. And like everybody's upset, like the, they said the. The funeral was just a circus because it's like cops everywhere. They thought, like, is this guy going to show up to the funeral? Um, is this guy going to show up to the dad's house at some point? Is he going to come after other family members, other people in the neighborhood? Like everybody's super on edge. And um, but basically he goes into hiding for eight years, just like just disappears. Ken, if you if you had to disappear from the cops, 
like how, how long do you think you could last? However long it took for them to check my basement, you know, yeah. like is that what it, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Like maybe oh, yeah, eleven he seconds. He's in the boiler room, guys. He's, <laughs> he's he's behind the sofa, guys. He's behind the sofa. Yeah. That's where we should have looked. Yeah, I just but be I like, just be on the couch with a blanket covering <laughs> me, say, hoping like they would, didn't. You'd be behind the couch, but like your foot would be sticking out because like don't fit. <laughs> um, I and I think it was actually like I mentioned before. I when when they did America. Uh, America's Most Wanted. Yep. I think that's when the tips started coming in. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And somehow, and I forget exactly, but somehow, I don't know if it was from America's Most Wanted, but like they figured out that he might be in the Houston area, like he was in Texas somewhere. Like that was, I forget exactly how that shook out, but he was, and this guy was so arrogant, so vain. And I think this was brilliant. The one, I think it was an FBI agent who's following this guy for eight years. T- decides that he's like this guy is so arrogant and he's i bet you he's gonna get plastic surgery he's gonna get plastic surgery so they oh, just right. send out wanted posters like of this guy you know like notices about this guy surgeon. to to uh plastic surgeons all over and that's where they got one of the hits was like one of the plastic surgeons was like yeah i work on this guy and they knew him so like they they narrowed it down even further so um finally in 1991 they arrested him and he was so he literally had when they when they arrested him in Houston, he had a tape of the America's Most Wanted episode yeah. in his briefcase. Like, who, who's he showing? Is he showing that to somebody? Um, I, I to write my book, I studied criminal psychopathy and it is so like such a classic kind of move. Like they love themselves. It's it's un- unreal. They're um, they're. I mean, actually, they don't really love themselves, but they're obsessed with themselves, you know? Right. Uh, Well, it's you want to it's like it's it's a credit like that's a real that's a real TV credit that you can show people. Yeah. Yeah, no, that is how how he's seen this next guy. (laughs) I have seen this. Also, I would expect like any dude that gets plastic surgery, I would assume has killed somebody. Like I can't even imagine why. Why would a dude be getting plastic surgery? Dude, I'm laughing because I I definitely know men who get plastic or like get fillers and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, they they're. I'm like, or they live in New York City. <laughs> it's, one, it's one or the other. They're either yeah. it's they're either from they're either from Bushwick or they killed somebody. <laughs> so here's something crazy. So the mother's mur- you know, Con- Con- uh, Connie Navarro is murdered in March of '83. Dave Navarro is 15. He's in a band called, was it called? Uh, Diz, uh, oh, what was it called? Oh, um, Not Disaster. D- d- uh, it was like D-I-Z, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll look it up. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. But, with Stephen Perkins. But then he, the, you know, they form Jane's Addiction. So from 15, so he's like 23 or 24 when they actually catch uh, Riccardi. Deconstruction is that no? No, no, that that, was, that came that after. Later, that was later. Um, I had it written down. It's like D. It's supposed to. It's like D I S, but it's like D. Is it disaster? Yeah, it might be. Like D I Z A S T E R. I think. Yeah, but it was spelled weird. Go ahead. But like, if you think about, it, so this is ninety one. Jane's addiction starts in the mid eighties. They get you know become to prominence in the late eighties, early nineties. I mean, they break up in what like I. You know, mid 90s. So 
he's a touring successful musician who's touring the world as Jane's addiction the entire time he's like somebody this guy might find me and kill me mm-hmm. yes. like just that in the back of his mind at at all times yes, yes. and that Crazy. was something you know that i think about a lot with my stepsister because she was missing for you know uh, six years or so that it, that feeling you know like uh my stepdad my other steps like no one knew where this guy was and i would always think you know and then i lived with her dad i'm like who's this guy he's out there yeah. You know, whoever killed her and we knew it was a man um, was out there, you know, until until it was solved in 2012. We had no idea. You know, I mean, we had an idea, but we could have been wrong. And that was definitely, you know, I, I, I wrote this down because it's actually a huge takeaway from my book, too. I think Dave Navarro says what he learned is there's no safety anywhere. Um, and that's actually a thousand percent true that safety. Safeties. I mean, I have a Helen Keller quote that I love. That's like, um, <laughs> I'm keep my mouth shut. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Security is mostly a superstition. Right. Wow. And um, it's, I think about that quote constantly. Yeah. And Ken, so, shut and, up, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> so this is. You, you know, you think of like whenever I I didn't know much about Dave Navarro, like I knew the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I knew Jane's Addiction, and you know I saw him, I knew what he looked like. I was like, oh, this guy obviously. Before I knew about the mom, I was like, oh, this guy obviously came from a dark path. You just look at him; he's got this aura. He, for all intents and purposes, and from what he says, he was a happy kid. Like he had a pretty. Ha- I mean, his parents got divorced, but they were friendly with each other. He lived in L.A. Everything was kind of cool. He kind of drank, kind of maybe smoked a little weed or whatever. But he said, like the night that his mom, that he found out that his mom was murdered, like he smoked a joint and realized that that could take away the pain, could could escape, and maybe be a security for a little while, and then just totally devolves into for the next you know decade or so into a life of drugs and uh just all these behaviors that you know almost killed him a number of times got him arrested a number of times i mean just i mean just spiraled out of control and he's it's it's obviously from march 3rd 1983 like that's that's yeah. what stemmed all of that. you know i wonder though because he's he was in a band of the, the original four members of Jane's Addiction, Stephen Perkins was the only one who wasn't like a full fledged heroin addict. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's possible he he goes down the same path anyway. I mean, he was it, could, so, yeah, it definitely could have happened. Possible, I mean, it was, or it's possible that um, there's some something that drew them together. Yeah. You know, that also, uh, you know, some something latent you know that that they recognize in one another yes yeah stephen perkins had the most interesting quote when we i i thought what he said about giving voice to perry farrell's pain (sighs) with his drum playing with, with with making those songs and then that hit me like oh i bet i bet that's how dave was just working out all of that inner torment through music I mean, yeah, I was kind of a, I was a dark kid, uh, privately, you know, and I, I absolutely, that music appealed to me, Jane's Addiction. I still, I still love them, you know, um, there was some, yeah, there was definitely something dark 
running yeah. through all of it. Yeah. And, and, and I think even there was the also funny, even the funny songs. And, and that's a, that's exactly what I was going to say. There was a sense of humor to it, which drew me to it. And I mean, I was just some little suburban kid, but like, you know, I was a had, you know, anxiety and stuff like that. Like, that's what drew me to that. It was like this. It wasn't this bombastic, like, you know, uh, good times, hair metal, whatever. It was this like, uh, again, it was this darkness. This, it was like, oh, the weird kids are making music yes. now. And that yeah. was what, you know, and, and they had a sense of humor about it. But it was, I mean, been caught stealing, just for example. I mean, that's a dark you know, just you watch the. I remember watching the video as a kid. And I was like, "This is, this is dark." There's something going. There's something going on. Yeah, Jane says it's dark. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a, bad. Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. There was something um, dark and introspective, but funny. Like it just it captured everything. I love when Stephen Perkins was like, um, "They were just poems." Uh, yes. that's why they don't go um verse course verse yeah. course bridge you know like he was like it's not like that it's just happens the way it ha-. that was really interesting to me yeah they they took perry's poems and then built music around them which you know i, I think i don't know much about song but i think normally you write the music and then you figure out or there's a structure and yeah i, I was listening to a interview with Rick Rubin recently and he was talking about how he was very recently working with an artist and he didn't name the artist but it was a pretty high profile and the artist had written a song and it just wasn't working out it just didn't have this it had a cool emotion to it but like it just, the, the lyrics weren't there he's like we can do better with these lyrics and they kept trying to change words and move things around and he he was like you know what I did I sent the, the person home and I said, write an essay about this situation. Like it was about a breakup or it was about whatever. And he was like, just go home and write a prose essay about it. Don't, don't worry about lyrics and verses and whatever. And, and then what they did was he started pulling words and phrases out of the paragraph and built the song that way, because he was like, what songwriters do so many times is like, it's not poetry or writing it's literally just a puzzle it's well this has to rhyme with this and it has to have this rhythm here so then it just totally limits you in you know it's, it's again going back to sudoku it's like a sudoku puzzle where you just got to fit things in where he's like that's not how emotions work it's like they're weird and disjointed and you know so i think the way jane's addiction approached it was different and you know that poetry and then they built the music around it so it wasn't that standard first chorus verse right Uh, so, uh, so by the way, get, getting back to uh, our boy John uh, Riccardi, they they pick him up. Uh, he's arrested, and he, everything. Every time you see him, he's just arrogant. He's like sneering. He's laughing. He's whatever. He he goes to trial, um, and he's like pulling all these things. He's got this like hearing device where he's trying to gain sympathy from the yeah. from the jury, probably like this dumb hearing device where he's like, oh, I, I can't hear. And he's trying to do that. Another. Arthur Shawcross, the most famous serial killer from Rochester, spoke in a really high pitched like voice in his trial Ugh. to make like he like he just wanted to prove that he was like unsound, like not of sound mind. Yeah, yeah. So that's like something they'll do. Like they do that. Yeah, and it's it, like you look at, I, even like I mean I, I don't know how true it was like you look at Harvey Weinstein with his Walker yeah. and you know Co- Cosby with like he's blind or you know Izzy you know like that type of situation the one uh who's the who's the one of uh, the uh michelle mcnamara the the 
Bay Area. The Golden um, State Killer. Golden State. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he, you know, is like this fragile old man. But, you know, yeah. you, could, you could tell that it was just a ruse. And yeah, uh, did, it, yeah. did you, either of you guys pick this up? It was just mentioned. Did John Riccardi's own mother testify against him? Was it they, he? They just mentioned it was like the mother, and they even showed footage that did she testify against him, or was it somebody else's mother? I can't remember. But I, I feel like that was mentioned, like, or if it was, it was like a it was like a state like character statement, kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know how shitty you got to be for your mom to testify against you? Exactly. Just the worst. Or just a so like a, an actual sociopath. Yeah. yeah. So the jury doesn't waste any time. Uh, two hours in and out. They're like guilty. Two counts of murder done. Uh, he's sentenced to death. Uh, and then so you think that's it. So then uh, so this isn't like I think 94. He was sentenced to death in 2012. He was uh, the California Supreme Court overturned his sentence, not his conviction, but his sentence. Uh, because of there was this weird thing about some weird jury uh, juror was dismissed because what uh, he or she wrote about not believing the death penalty, something like that. And like it was unjustly dismissed or something like that. So they overturned it. So they turned it to uh, life without parole. And he tried to appeal it again in 2014, but his appeal was denied. So currently uh, he's life without parole. And there hasn't been much about him in the last few years like i haven't read anything i'm assuming he's still alive uh rotting yeah. in prison i yes. don't know if he's died rotting uh and, but then the weird thing is in 2013 and i think this was such a crazy ending to this uh documentary mm-hmm. is that dave navarre decides to go to uh see him yeah this in, is i think it's san quentin and like kind of surprises him like he doesn't the, the john mccarty doesn't know he's coming surprises him and sits down and talks to him and he, he they don't he doesn't get into too many details about what was actually said, but he was like, they didn't know if it was going to be a bad idea or not. But then uh, the, the one thing that he came out after being really shook for a while was that after that, like he, he said that is he, it was kind of cathartic obviously. And that he started having better memories of his mom. The, the memories right. were less about the murder and more about life before the murder and all the good times. And uh, you know, it, he, it felt like the that. meeting with, with um, Riccardi was a little anticlimactic for Dave Navarro, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I and I remember noticing that because that's actually I I think a lot about uh, closure, the concept of closure, and if it's possible at all. And I think for the most part, it's also illusory, like security. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another note that I wrote down was he said something like, "As an adult, he said to himself, enough is enough." So it's almost like. He maybe he needed to face Riccardi and maybe that was like the child, Dave Navarro, who went to visit him in prison. And then as an adult, he's like, I'm done. And it reminded me a lot of um, one of Stephanie's college friends. He said to me, uh, that's my stepsister. Um, he, he said this quote. Uh, yeah, I just take, kept taking bites of this shit sandwich and I just didn't want to take any more bites. Yeah. And, and that's like kind of what it felt like but sometimes you just kind of go you know what that's enough you know mm. um and you choose happiness and you choose joy yeah what was um kind of did. it was uh it was and then to see like it pushed dave into he says he became suicidal and depressed he did blame himself um but then it's it's he made such amazing 
music and art, I guess, out of it. And, and you just, you don't, it's weird. Like you can't tell with him how differently things would have gone. Like there's a good chance he, he still went down those same dark paths. Um, I wonder if the art would have been different. I mean, I think this a lot too about like artists who experience tragedy and then create art, you know, yeah. that that art wouldn't maybe wouldn't exist without the tragedy having existed. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's worth it. I don't think right. whatever no, is, I'm... but I don't think anyone would think that, but no, you know, but the art still exists yeah. because of, no, I'm sure he'd rather have his mom than, you know, like I, like I wish that album, you know, wasn't quite as great. And I still had my mom, I'm sure. Right. Um, he said, I think he actually says, I don't remember. Um, um, so Rachel, so growing up now, so how old were you when, when your um, when your mom marries? I was 19. Your stepfather. Um, your, 19 and right. And so I, and then I think, or 20, I guess, uh, 20. And then right after I graduated or April of my senior year of college is when her remains were found. So I was 21. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I just was around for all of that aftermath of that. Like the case kicked into high gear again when her remains were found, you know, there were cops at, at our house. Um, it's funny. Like I was sort of in and out because I was in college, but the the lead investigator, Dave Connors, you know, who I know now and spoke to in 2015, he's like, yeah, I know your mom, you know, so it, it's. I was very much aware of what was happening. I was very struck by the whole entire thing. I would think I would think about going to I would think about my dog is like making annoying noises. Um, yeah. I would think about going up to Rochester um, and I don't know. I would think about that same thing about Dave Navarro. I would think about going to face this person that we thought had done it. Yeah. It wasn't proven. I I thought, I don't know what I thought, like what I could get him to confess, but I totally would always think I'm going to go up to Rochester and face this person, you know, and he was, it was too scary. There were, there were a lot of moments during morning sun when I was like, yep. Um, the safety, th- there's no safety anywhere. I was terrified. Like I was the right age to, you know, f- I was 14 when she disappeared, which is the right age to sort of become terrified mm-hmm. of something, you know? And even before that, like my, my biggest fear, grow- I remember like being five and being like, te- like robbers were like my biggest fear. Cause I guess I didn't know murderers existed, but like violation has always been my biggest fear, you right. know, any, any sort a violation. Um, I, you know, I, I prefer living in an apartment because I feel safer than yeah. in a house, you know, um, houses. When I, when I sleep in a house, I'm like, I'm in a permeable box. You know, that's the way I feel. Um, but yeah, so that was one thing that I, that I felt, uh, sort of like a kinship, like this sort of like, like complete shattering of any sense of security. And the more I, the more I researched and the more I found out about the actual crime and the, the more I was like, yeah, there's no, there's no security. And I asked Stephanie's killer's defense attorney, who is now a friend of mine, strangely, um, what he learned from the whole thing. And he said, 
no one is safe. And he's like, my daughters have uh, deadbolts on their doors. So, and that's the killer's defense attorney, you yeah, know? So, I'm... so everyone who knows the story is like, um, yeah, there's no security, there's no safety. But um, if I can get to that, a big thing for me also is like what men do to women. Uh, I know that you're two men, but there, it's something that I think about a lot. It's like, um, I'm a feminist. Sorry. Jen. No, but you're like a fun one though. <laughs> Sometimes. The rest of the time, no, not fun. Um, but the, the section of my book that I wanted to read is just, I wrote um, one, I said, uh, there are lessons to learn. One is that the biggest danger to women, including trans women, and in fact, to all femme presenting people, without a doubt is men. Of all female homicide victims worldwide, over 50% are killed by intimate partners and 98% of those intimate partners are men. In 2017, the FBI, the FBI found that of all homicides where the victim was a woman and the perpetrator a man, and both parties could be identified, 98% of the killers were men the women knew in some capacity. Overall, men kill over 85% of all homicide victims, men or women. In 2015, in the United States, there were 23 recorded homicides of trans women. All but one were killed by a man. The biggest threat to women is men, especially ones they know. The gender theorist Judith Butler said in a 2015 interview, killing is an act of power, a way of reasserting domination, even a way of saying, I'm the one who decides who lives and dies. So killing establishes the killer as sovereign in the moment that he kills. And that is the most toxic form that masculinity can take. And I absolutely thought of exactly that part of my book when I was watching Morning Sun. Yeah, I have to tell you, Rachel, that book does not sound nearly as fun as you made it sound. And I, I made my book sound fun. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> that is, I um that is it's got to be the hardest part of like dating and shit, right? Like, is this guy uh, gonna yes, kill me? Actually, there's somebody. There was a tweet that someone wrote once that I like that I I was it blew it went viral, but it was like. Uh, one day, um, a, 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 a male acquaintance of mine walked me home from the bar. We had a really nice conversation and he dropped me off at home. The next day, he murdered a sex worker. So, no, not all men, but some men, indistinguishable from other men. Yeah. And that was like the whole tweet. So, yeah. yes, absolutely. Like, it's like dating is weird. You know, it's like. And I like to, there's, I have a date tonight and he's like, should I, should I pick up at your place? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm then, a true crime writer. You know that about me. It's like, yeah. of course I don't want you to be my place. <laughs> do you get, do you get a little, um, like when you hear about like a female serial killer as a part of like, do you get a little proud a little, like, are you a little bit like, all right, that's. Can you, can you name any? Um, the, the, uh, monster lady. That's right? literally the only one I could think of. Yeah. There are no, none. no. And, but there's, um, there was that nurse lady in England. Oh, oh, um, what do they call them? Guardian or the angel killer or something, something like that. Yeah. Angels of death. Angels of yes. death. Yeah. Angels. Nanny of death. Doss. Okay. Another one. Yeah. yeah. Angels of death is a spe very specific and interesting subset of serial killers. And I think there are, are like men who are all have also been like 
uh, Angels of Death. Like, that's so awful. A dude nurse. I knew you were going to I like knew that's what we were going to say. I didn't even want to say male nurses because I knew that's what you're going to say. Well, this has been a this been a fun, uplifting episode. We had some jokes. There yeah, no, this was about Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> Elvis jokes. I'm glad that we did this one after um, Richard Marks and Stephen Perkins. Um, yeah. Oh, the other quote that I loved, just the other quote I loved uh, is when Dave Navarro says it was a million years ago. It was yesterday. Yeah. You know yeah. what? There is there is something about that where um, I related to that, especially yeah. when when somebody gets taken from you like in the in the blink of an eye where it's like, oh, that person was here one second and gone the next. It's it's like time does stand still. Like I was I was telling Chip, uh, uh, my dad was hit by a car and, and killed instantly. And um, you do sort of get that like. It, it feels like a million years ago. It feels like yesterday. Like it definitely fucks with your sense of time. It's mm -hmm. like time stood still for me for for close to a year. And, and everything seemed so far away and so close all at the same time. So um, I think when like somebody's sick and you can sort of prepare yourself for it, you, you can say a proper goodbye in that. I, I don't you know, I've, I've dealt with that, too, but um I think you go into some kind of shock when it's when it's something traumatic like that. Well, we're going into this is going to be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I was teaching that day and I can remember everything crystal clear. You know, it seems yeah. like yesterday. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it was decades ago. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that line was so poignant. Well, Rachel, when does your book come out? My book comes out in February of 2022. I really hope that I can have a real book tour and that people get vaccinated and all that stuff and that the pandemic ends and life goes back to normal so I can have book signings and things like that. <laughs> and where can people um, find you or find the find the book? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Ray Rear, R-A-E-R-E-A-R. You can find my book, Catch the Sparrow by Rachel Rear. It's I, I, I've been pushing this awesome indie bookstore in Brooklyn, Greenlight. So um, I think I have a link to it in my Twitter profile um, or in a pinned tweet. But I would you can find it anywhere. Basically, it's on Amazon. It's on it's on like it's definitely in places that you would think it would be, but I would prefer if everybody went to like ask, even if, even if your local bookstore isn't carrying it to ask them to, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah. Support local indie bookstores. I, I feel like you should just be happy enough that people are reading. Like you're going to give them a hard time about where they get the book. He's so full of shit because he reads more than me. <laughs> I know, but you'd be horrified. I, I read books on my phone now. Uh, that's fine. You literally read more than me. Yeah, but mostly just dumb music biographies. Well, I can't I can't wait to I can't wait to get your book. I asked you for for a free autographed yeah, copy and, and you told me no. You no, told me I was going to have to buy it. This is my advanced reader copy, which was like the most exciting day of my life. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, 
How many? No. How do I not make the cut for that for advanced reading? Well, I don't know. I think I pay for your comedy shows, which is like way worse than you. God, can you imagine paying to see Ken Grant perform? I have definitely bought tickets to your shows, and I would like my money back. That's fair. All right, I'll buy your book. Everybody should go out and buy Rachel's book. Um, I felt a lot of connection to Dave Navarro's story. And I just want to say, Dave Navarro, if you're listening, you're not alone. Call me. We can get together. We can have a coffee, whatever you want. All right. I'll see you around. All right. Well, there you have it, Dave Navarro. Get it, my friend, Rachel. Yeah. Also, go on the go on Ken's, Ken's podcast. Yes. Come on the podcast. We just had Stephen on. And Richard Marks and Daisy Fuentes. So, all right, everybody, we will talk to you next week. 